Amen. Okay. So we are getting started tonight with uh, class number six. And uh, if you were here last week, then you know that Ronnie was covering the canon of the Old Testament scripture and uh, covering and, and, and getting into the canon of scripture. Can anybody just tell me real quickly what that word canon means? Does anybody remember from the study last week? Yes, sir. It's a standard. Right. Standard or rule. Right. Okay. So so can somebody in your own words kind of explain to me how that works? What is the what do we mean when we're saying the canon of scripture? Anybody want to take a crack at that in your own words? Just what does that mean when we say, you know, the canon of scripture? Is it how's it how is the canon of the scripture? Discovered? Was it chosen upon? Did the New Testament church choose it? How did it come about? I'll say facts. Just with the facts and also the historical, you can also just prove yourself. We can change lives of what we are seeing today. Yeah. So we could say it's kind of like the law of gravity was discovered. The canon of Scripture was discovered, right? It wasn't that we, that man chose and said, well, we'll choose this book, but not that one, and we'll choose this letter, and we'll choose. It was more like, okay, that's God's word. There's no doubt about it. And it was more discovered than it was set by the, new, by, by the uh, church. And so that's, that's, the, that's what we mean when we're talking about the canon of Scripture. We're not talking about, you know, something that man came along and sat in the position of judge and said, well, this book is in, but that book's out, or I like this one, but I don't like that one. It was more like, hey, these books are divine. They are changing people's lives. They have, a, 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 they have an authorship, an, an authentic authorship. They're uh, correct and accurate historically, prophetically, and all these other reasons. We're going to look at some of that tonight as well. But before we get into why these books are, are, are uh, considered to be canon, let's talk about the Apocrypha. We're talking about Old Testament canon, and I want to talk about the Apocryphal literature with you guys tonight. That term Apocrypha, how many of you guys even know what the Apocrypha, have anybody seen it or read parts of it or read it? Some of you have, okay. Um, if you've ever seen a Catholic Bible, a Catholic Bible is going to have the Apocryphal books usually attached to it. Most Protestant Bibles or Christian Bibles, you know, you're not going to find the Apocrypha in those, and we're going to get into that tonight. We're going to talk about why. But that term, Apocrypha, it means hidden or concealed. And it comes from the Greek word apocryphos. And, it, it, you know, it, it came about in, the, in about the 4th century when Jerome, he was the first one to call the group of those books the Apocrypha. So Jerome is kind of the one that, that came up with that name. The Apocrypha consists of the books of the Old Testament by the Catholic Church that Protestants say are not canonical, okay? Uh, and I've got them listed there for you in your notes, I believe. First Esdras, Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the song of the three holy children, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, First, First and Second Maccabees, and the History of Susanna. Those are the canon or the uh, apocryphal books, not canonical, apocryphal. 
So we're going to look at why these are not canonical. Why does the, why does the Protestant church not view the Apocrypha as canon, uh, as, as the rule of faith, or as, as inspired and inerrant word of God? Well, number one, they abound in historical and geographical inaccuracies and anachronisms. And we're going to look at that. I'm, I'm, if you didn't notice that tonight, I'm giving you guys a bit of a break on your notes. You're not having to fill in blanks, but just follow along with me. Uh, I want to give you guys some examples of inaccuracies. Uh, in First Ezra, for example, that First Ezra adds a fable of how Zerubbabel was allowed to rebuild the temple. Now, we know that that's a historical error. Can anybody tell me who it was that rebuilt the temple according to the Bible? No. Ezra, yes, that's right. It was Ezra. And yet here in 1st Ezra, this this apocryphal book, it it credits Zerubbabel as having rebuilt the temple. That's a historical error. Another sample story from the book of 1st Ezra. There were three guardsmen who were asked at some point, what is the strongest thing in the world? And one of them said wine. The other one said the king. He was probably the one trying to butter him up a little bit, you know, get a, get a better position. I don't know. But, and then the other one said woman and truth. Okay? So he picked two answers. And, but they were put under the king's pillow. And in the morning he found truth to be the strongest. So that's kind of an example of a story. Like they're just kind of weird cryptic stories like that. And it doesn't match in language. It doesn't match Ezra. It doesn't match Nehemiah. Uh, another sample of an error in first or in in the apocryphal books. Uh, it, it is claimed in Tobit that that Tobit was alive when the Assyrians conquered Israel, as well as when Jeroboam revolted against Judah, which is a total of two hundred and nine years. Yet we know that according to the book of Tobit, his lifespan was only 117 years. So that's an inaccuracy to claim that he was alive at both of those dates that are 209 years apart. And yet he only lived 117 years. It's impossible. You can't be you, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't uh, work out. Another sample of an error. Judith speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as reigning in Nineveh. Instead of in Babylon, that's Judith 1 verse 1. Uh, it says, it was the 12th year of Nebuchadnezzar who reigned over the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. That's a historical error. Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 1 has it right. It says, the Lord showed me there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah. So you, you see the Bible is always accurate historically. Whereas the apocryphal books, they've got these errors in them. Second reason why these books are not canonical is because they teach doctrines. B, they teach doctrines which are false and foster practices which are at variance with the inspired scriptures. A sample of a false doctrine found in the book of Tobit 12.9 teaches that alms gives or giving of alms atones for sin. Okay, that should ring a bell for us. That was a, uh, something that the Catholic Church practiced. 
and uh, you know, and 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 you know, had that that idea. Well, they get it from here. Tobit twelve nine. Almsgiving saves from death and purges every kind of sin. That's in the that's from the, a quote from the New Jerusalem Bible. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, First John chapter one verse seven says, "But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin." Well, it's not the giving of alms, it's the blood of Jesus, right? Galatians 2.16 as well. Knowing that man is not justified by works of the law. Say, so if, we, if I could give alms, that would be a work that I'm doing. I could contribute to my holiness. But it's not, we're not justified by our works. But only through the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by the faith of Christ. Not by works of law. For by the works of law, no flesh shall be justified. The Bible is very clear. Amen? Amen. Second Maccabees, another error. It supports prayers for the dead and salvation by works. Another big Catholic uh, doctrine there. Tradition. They pray for the dead. Uh, and so Second Maccabees 12, 45 and 46 says, For if he had not expected the fallen... To rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Whereas if he had in view the splendid recompense reserved for those who make a pious end, the thought was holy and devout. This was why he had this atonement sacrifice offered for the dead so that they might be released from their sin. So it's kind of hard to understand. It's very wordy, but it's saying there that you can make atonement for those that are already dead, that they might be released from their sin. You could actually go in and through prayer, you could have this person be released. And, and you know what? When I lived in Costa Rica, I attended several different funerals and, of, of Catholics. And after those funerals, they would light candles for them in the home and they would hold a vigil. And they would pray sometimes for days for that person. And what was the reason for those prayers? Well, they were praying that their time in purgatory would be shortened. And that they would be able to uh, be released sooner than expected. Uh, which is very interesting when you think about But the Bible tells us differently. If you've ever read Luke chapter 16, and there's a parable there. Jesus, well, it's not really a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells. And he uh, mentions names. He never mentions names in any of the other parables. That's why we think this is an actual story that Jesus was telling. But he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And after they died, they went into Abraham. Well, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man was separated on the other side of Hades. And he was in torment. And he even asked, he said, hey, can't you send Lazarus back to talk to my family and let him know? And Jesus said, uh, there's, there's been a, a chasm. Well, I mean, he said, uh, uh, I, I'm getting mixed up here. Not the chasm. He said, yeah, he's already got the law. He's already got Moses. He's got the word of Moses. And if he's not going to believe that, then there's nothing we can do for him because nobody can cross over from here to you, you know, uh, from here to them. And so there's no second chances, the Bible teaches us, after death. Also, Hebrews 9.27 says it very bluntly. It says, and it is appointed to man once to die, but after this, judgment. So there is no um, going into a time where you have purgatory or you, you pay for sin and then uh, slowly ascend into heaven. Do you know when the Catholics added the Apocrypha to their Bible? It was at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, and we're going to touch on that. And that was actually um, 
Yeah, it, it wasn't until the uh, 1800s that it was actually officially canon, uh, or what they, what they call Deuter canon, yeah. which is secondary um, to the canon of Scripture. But that was when they, they did that. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second here. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18. Oh, also, this is another one. We are not to pray for or try to contact the dead. According to the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12 says, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. So we shouldn't be consulting the dead. We shouldn't be trying to communicate to the dead. Um, it's, it's not something that we're, we're told to do in Scripture. Now, is it wrong to think about someone who's gone before you? No, I don't think that that's wrong at all. But if you're uh, you know, trusting in them and praying to them and trying to get in good with God through them, well, that's, that's something the Bible never encourages us to do. And so it's one thing to, to have a fond memory and to think upon those that have gone before us into heaven. But it's another thing entirely to begin to pray to them and to think that they have any sort of power there in heaven. We're told that Jesus Christ is our only mediator. Yes. I'm glad that you brought this up. My little boy came to me today. First time I've heard this. And he said, hey, uh, is there such thing as a Christian Catholic? I was like... No, <laughs> no. But uh, he said, well, this is what the little kids are calling themselves at school. He said they practice Catholicism, which is, you know, a Catholic, but they call themselves Christians also. Uh -huh. And so he asked me, difference now that I broke down the sort of the difference of it, which I also take this right here to him. But uh, he said they're now they're calling themselves Christian Catholics, mm -hmm. right? Which, like I said, that was the first time I heard that from my 13-year-old today. So yeah. I mean, that may be yeah. something that's new to school. Yeah. Now, there are Catholics that do believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they don't pray to Mary. They don't trust in Mary for salvation. They're looking to Christ alone. I, I believe that they're saved. I believe that we'll see them in heaven. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of things in the Catholic Church. There are a lot of doctrines that are not, they don't line up. Well, I shouldn't say doctrine. I should say it's church tradition and teaching that does not line up with, with Scripture. So that's where we have to draw the line, you know. Um, Right, right here, we're looking at another one. It says, we're not saved by anyone's works except for Christ's. And, and, and Romans 11, verse 6 says, if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So, you know, there's the idea that you can work your way into heaven. You can, you can earn your salvation through works of uh, 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 penance or of, you know, uh, good deeds and things like that. Another sample of a false teaching. Judith praying against the Assyrians. He prays for a lying tongue. Okay, Judith chapter 9, 10, and 13 says, By guile of my lips, strike slave down with master and master with his servant. Then he says, Give me a beguiling tongue to wound and kill those who have formed such cruel designs against your covenant. So kind of a weird deal there where you've got this example of someone who's supposed to be a saint and they're praying for the power to lie, 
That doesn't make sense, right? Have you ever prayed, God, help me be a good liar, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't need any help with that usually. I'm pretty good at that on my own, you know? But, but it's just confusing. John 8, Jesus taught, John 8, 44. He said, the devil is your father and the desires of your father you will gratify. He was a manslayer from the beginning. He swerved from the truth because there was no veracity in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks suitably to his character for he is a liar and the father of lying. So the Bible teaches us that it's not God that is the source of lies. It can help you be a good liar. It's the devil who's the source of lies and, and teaches us to lie. So that's another uh, reason why the Apocrypha is not canon or rule of faith or standard scripture for those of us that are Protestants. C, thirdly, they resort to literary types and display an artificiality of subject matter and styling that is out of keeping with inspired scripture. For example, they tack on prayers of Manasseh to Chronicles and other prayers in Esther and Mordecai to the book of Esther, along with letters from Artaxerxes. So this is an error of different writing styles. They're, they're basically using prayers that don't fit the literary style of that day. It would be kind of like how uh, um, you or I, perhaps in the 80s, we would use that word bad. Oh, that was so bad. But what do we mean? We don't mean bad. We mean good, right? It, there's a literary style from the 80s or in the 90s when you said sick. That was sick, man, you know, and everybody goes, yeah, you know, and, and you're looking at him like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean like you were throwing up. It means that that was awesome, you know. Or in the 2000s when you say, man, he's killing it, you know, it means you're doing amazing, right? And, you know, all of these literary styles from different times, it, that, that's what it's like when you tack on prayers to the ends of these books. They don't fit. The literary styles are not the same, okay? So also D, they lack the distinctive elements which give genuine scripture their divine character, such as prophetic power and poetic and religious feeling. Um, we know that when scripture was written, 25% of it was prophetic. But in the apocryphal writings, only 1% of it is prophecy. And even that, it's, it's kind of debatable whether it's prophetic truth. All, almost all of the prophecy that's found in one book, or is, is of the apocrypha, it's found in one book. It's the book of 2nd Esdras, which includes about seven visions. So prophecy, though, is one of God's main tests for authenticity. That's one of the main reasons we know the Bible is, is from God. He calls, he sees the end, and he calls it like it's going to happen, and then we're just kind of watching the roadmap unfold. We're like, yep, there that was, yep, that was. There's been over, almost over 1,500 prophecies of the Bible have already come to pass. Literally, just like they're written there. And it's incredible when you study that. Yes. Number two, the Apocrypha was rejected by, Jew, by the Jews on several occasions, okay? They never quoted from it. So even the Jewish people recognized the flaws of the Apocrypha, and they didn't add that into their Old Testament canon. Thirdly, Jesus never quoted from it, okay? Jesus never quoted from it. He quotes hundreds of passages of the Old Testament, but he never once quotes from the Apocrypha. And then fourthly, the New Testament writers never quoted from it either. 
the apostles and, and those that wrote, they never quoted from it. And fifthly, it did not even become officially canonical. So here's the answer to Ronnie's question. For the Catholics until the Council of Trent in 1546 A.D. And this was then confirmed by the Vatican Council of 1870. So think about that, guys. It didn't even uh, become official canon until 1546. And it wasn't even confirmed until uh, 300 years later. Irving L. Jensen says this in his book, Journey of the Bible. He says, Luther's German Bible of 1534 was the first printed Bible to separate the apocryphal books from the 39 canonical group. This started a growing trend of omitting the apocryphal books from Protestant Bibles, or at most including them in the closing pages with a separate introduction showing them to be non-canonical. Today, Roman Catholic Bibles print the apocryphal books in the sequence of the 39, regarding them as having a deuter-canonical status, that is, secondary importance. Most Protestant Bibles omit the apocrypha completely. Um, and just out of curiosity, do any of you guys have a Bible that has the apocrypha in it? You do? You have one? Is it, is it a Catholic Bible? or is it? Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. One of the interesting things... Um, well, I'll, I'll just I'll keep moving here. Um, so many Christians don't know this, but the Council of Trent, the council there in 1546, it actually anathematizes those that do not belong to the Catholic Church. A lot of people don't know that. Um, let me read to you a quote from the, the website Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. It's called CARM. And they had this quote about the Council of Trent. It said, uh, about the Council of Trent, you'll see several times the word anathema is used in the Council of Trent. And it says, that word means, or this means that those who disagree with the doctrines of this council, the Council of Trent, are cursed. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, the word anathema is used. So the curse must come from God. Therefore, we conclude that according to Roman Catholicism, anyone who disagrees with the following canons is actually cursed of God. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicates those under anathema. So in other words, excommunication means being outside the Christian church. Being outside the church means you are not saved. If you're outside the Catholic church then you are uh, not saved in in the terms that are written down in the Council of Trent. And it was confirmed there in 1870, as as you see. So you can do some research on that on your own. I I was reading some of that as I was preparing my notes. It's really very, very insightful. It's really very interesting, some of the things that were uh, confirmed at that council. Uh. That also reminds me of a joke about a Lutheran pastor. This is found in the second book of Catholic jokes, by the way, by Deacon Tom Sherdian. And he tells, he tells about a Lutheran pastor who was walking through his neighborhood one day, and he saw several children that were playing with some newborn puppies. So he went over to these kids and he said, hey, what kind of puppies are those kids? And they said, these are Lutheran puppies. 
and he was tickled, you know, he thought that was great. All right, Lutheran puppies, you know. He saw him again the next day and said, hey, you know, I thought he'd just ask me, what kind of puppies are those kids? These are Lutheran puppies, pastor. Oh, that's so cool. You know, he thought it was great. So he, he was, uh, the next week, had a visit from his uh, parish bishop who came to kind of visit the, the parish there. And so he thought he would impress her. So he took her for a walk out in the neighborhood and he saw those kids and he said, oh, come, come here. He brought him over to those kids and he said, what kind of puppies are these kids? And they said, these are Catholic puppies. And he got all embarrassed, you know, and he was like red in the face. And he said, well, you told me last week these were Lutheran puppies. And he said, the kids all told him, well, yeah, they were, but now their eyes are opened. (laughs) So a little Catholic joke against us, I guess, but thought it was pretty funny. We We could turn it around and use it on them probably, but no, I'm kidding. Honestly, I'm not interested in having some huge conflict with the Catholics. That, you know, I think, I think we just need to do what God's called us to do. They need to do what God's calling them to do. and Keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes in the Word of God. You know, it's, it's through the Word of God that we're not going to be led astray. And that's the main thing. And, and like I said, I, I do, I have met Catholics that, that I think know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They know the Word they don't get caught up in some of the tradition and things like that. Um, and, and, and they're trying to, to work uh, for good within the Catholic community. And so uh, we, we, need to, we just need to pray for them and, and then do, do what the Word of God tells us, which is to be at peace with all men as much as is possible for us uh, to do. So find the common ground. The common ground there is Jesus Christ. And, and, but I will say this too, you know, uh, in, in my time there... As a missionary in, in a 90% Catholic nation there in Costa Rica, I met literally hundreds of Catholics who thought that they were going to be saved by the things that they did, not by their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so it was about, um, you know, were they taking Eucharist? Were they attending the Mass? Had they been baptized? You know, uh, all of those things. Were they... Uh, uh, and taking Eucharist was a really big thing. And if you'd ever been divorced, well, you couldn't take Eucharist anymore. Um, so it was, it was in, in confession, going to confession, all those sorts of things were super important. But the reality is, is that most of them were never doing those things. And so they were just always walking around with condemnation over them, you know, and just feeling like they were not good enough and uh, were never going to be able to make it into heaven, you know. And that's why they were all hoping for the, uh, the, uh, uh, the doctrine of purgatory. So that they could get prayed out of purgatory and into, into heaven, you know, after they died. So it, there's a lot of hopelessness there, too. All right, moving on here. D, the pseudo-apocryphal writings. These are books that are not held canonical by Jews, Catholics, or Protestants, but are thought to be canonical by some people. Not, not very many, but there are some. Um, of those books, there are some that have historical importance, but they're definitely not inspired by God. For example, the Epistle of Pseudo Barnabas has some historical uh, importance, value. The Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of the Laodiceans, the Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians. Those are books that have some historical importance, and if you get a chance, uh, they'd be good for you to check out uh, sometime. Uh, some of the pseudepigraphal books that I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but there no value and not of God would be a book like The Lost Years of Christ, the published book of Enoch, 
the forgotten books of the Bible, etc. In Norman Geisler's book, A A General Introduction to the Bible, he talks about how the uh, lost years of Christ, the book or the uh, pseudo apocryphal book, The Lost Years of Christ, that actually shows Jesus doing miracles as a child. But we know that Scripture doesn't ever teach us that. The, the Scripture clearly shows us his first miracle was what? Wine. Water to wine, right? So, so where's all that coming from? Well, somebody was making it up and trying to profit from it. And that's what was going on. I don't know. Did anybody recently see there was a movie, I think, that came out actually about the miracles of Christ as a child? You know, it was playing here in Paris. I don't know if anybody saw it. But I decided not to go see it because I was like, well, I know that that's all based on, you know, basically farces you know it's not based on truth what are some of those gospels there's uh, more than 50 pseudepigraphal gospels that's a mouthful pseudepigraphal i don't even know if i'm saying it right but though many of them are known by name only and others have a few scattered citations in the in the church fathers but they're definitely not uh as widespread at all as the canonical scriptures are uh, I'm gonna, we're just going to talk about some of the more significant ones. For example, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas in the early 2nd century uh, was, when it was written. The Gospel of Thomas was known to Hippolytus, Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Irenaeus. Irenaeus. There were at least two versions of this collection of sayings, one of which shows Gnostic influence. Like other accounts of the infancy of Christ, the Gospel of Thomas contains fanciful stories of alleged childhood miracles of Jesus. There's an example right there. It says, This little child Jesus, when he was five years old, was playing at the ford of a brook. And he gathered together the waters that flowed there into pools and made them straightway clean and commanded them by his word alone. And having made soft clay, he fashioned thereof twelve sparrows. Jesus clapped his hands together and cried out to the sparrows and said to them, Go! And the sparrows took their flight and went away chirping. So there's one example in another story, he tells how a cursed, he curses a lad to wither like a tree. How would you like to have that power as a kid, you know? <laughs> Somebody does you wrong and you're like, curse you, you know. It says in the, in the book, it says, And when Jesus saw what was done, he was wroth and said unto, them, unto him, O evil, ungodly, and foolish one, what hurt did the pools and waters do thee? Behold, now also thou shalt be withered like a tree, and shalt not bear leaves, neither root nor fruit. And straightway that lad withered up wholly, but Jesus departed and went unto Joseph's house. So they kind of, you get the idea, they're kind of painting Jesus as if he's like a, a foolish child, yet he has God's powers, and he's able to run around and do whatever he wants, basically. There's a, a yet... So all of these accounts reflect a dimension, though, of Jesus' personality. It's at, at odds with what the New Testament sets forth. The New Testament clearly shows us Jesus was without sin. Now, did Jesus have to learn? Well, yes, he did. The Bible says he grew in grace and favor with men, and he grew in stature. He was a normal child like anybody else, yet he was not he did not sin. He never sinned. The Bible says that he learned obedience through suffering. But that doesn't mean he learned it like we do. It means that the learning was through the experience of coming out of heaven into a human body and then going through suffering. Uh, But we know that Jesus, when he uh, died, his death on the cross, it would not have been an acceptable sacrifice had he himself been a sinner. He had to be sinless in order to save sinners. 
So all of that, that is very clear in the New Testament. But the Gospel of Thomas paints him out as if he were just kind of a, a child who lost his temper and <laughs> did all kinds of crazy stuff. All right, we come now to the New Testament canon. We're going to talk about the reasons for the New Testament canon here. Reasons for the New Testament canon. You, you've got, uh, first of all, heresy taking place in the early church. You had heretics such as Marcion. He was a guy who basically developed his own Bible, and he started distributing that in the early church. He had one gospel. It was the shortened gospel of Luke. He cut out all of the other stuff that he didn't like, and a lot of the miracles he didn't like. So he cut out miracles. And then he also had, he loved Paul. So he had 10 edited Pauline epistles, minus the letters to Timothy and Titus. And then all Old Testament references, he also cut them out of his Bible. And that was what he was passing out. So because of that, the church said, hey, we can't have this kind of uh, edited scripture going out. We need, to, we need to canonize scripture and set it as the standard for all the church. And, or, and, and, and as I said before, they didn't actually set it. They were just discovering it and saying, this is it right here, guys. Um, also, B, the Edict of Diocletian in AD 303 declared the destruction of the scriptures of the Christians. So Christians in those times were being persecuted in, in really heavy ways. And they wanted to know, hey, am I dying for true books or am I dying for something that's just you know, some letter that some guy wrote and doesn't have divine meaning. They wanted to know. And so 25 years later, this proved to be a positive motivation uh, for the Roman emperor Constantine, who came in and he actually encouraged and sponsored the copying and preservation of Bibles. So almost everyone in America owns a Bible today. Probably nine out of ten is what the statistics say. That households in America, 9 out of 10, have a Bible in them somewhere. Uh, it's also in almost every hotel room. So why does the Bible deserve this kind of exposure? Why is the Bible so uh, special? What? And, and, and really, the Bible is unique in that it encourages us to examine it. There's no other book that makes the dramatic claims that the Bible does and then says, search me out. See if it's true. For yourself, see for yourselves, test all things. We know the Bible says in First Thessalonians chapter five. So, what are the tests of a book that is seeking to be included in the canon of Scripture? It's important to see that not only is the Bible scientifically, archaeologically, prophetically, morally, and historically accurate, but it also leads you to the author himself, which is God. The Bible clearly leads us into a relationship with God. We want to make sure that we limit the Bible to what God has said. Because that's what the most important thing is. You can't include all truth in the Bible because that would not lead you to God. So the Bible is full of truth, but it's full of truth and stories that lead us into a relationship with the Lord. So here's the questions that were asked as the church was discovering the canon of Scripture, of New Testament Scripture. They asked, is it authoritative? Number one, is this book authoritative? Meaning, did this come from the hand of God? Does, it, does the authorship show that it is thus saith the Lord? Does it show divine inspiration? Is it in agreement with other accepted books? And then if it was not, they threw it out. 
Mark, it was Mark Twain who said this. He said, most people are bothered by the passages of Scripture that they do not understand. But the passages that bother me are those that I do understand. And he was not even a believer. But that's what he talked about as, as far as the Bible was concerned. The second question that was asked is, is this prophetic or is it prophetic? Meaning, is it written by the hand of God or is it written by man? Does it reveal things that man could not know? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So interesting thing about prophecy is, is that uh, you could test it. You can test prophecy because you're going to find out if it's, it, does it come true or not? It, does it, is this happening the way that it was prophesied about? Um, that's another great proof for the existence of God. Uh, thirdly, the question, is it authentic? Meaning, was this written by an apostle or believer? Was it correct in its authorship and its, in its history? Those kind of questions were applied to the uh, canon of Scripture. For example, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke was writing things that had been handed down to him through eyewitness accounts. So he did research. He was interviewing people. And then he was writing down these things. And he was actually, the book of Luke is written to his good friend, Theophilus, which means lover of God. Now, the church fathers had a policy that when, when they were in doubt, they threw it out. So the books that made it, that, that are the canon of Scripture, man, if there was a doubt, these guys threw it out. They didn't play around with it. The fourth question that was asked is, is it dynamic? Meaning, was it life transforming? Does this edify or bring somebody closer to God? Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Amazing verses. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then it goes on. But, but people have read that over the centuries, and th- those verses draw them closer to the Lord. You realize, wow, you're right. This is what I should be doing is laying down my life and giving myself to the Lord, presenting myself to him as a living sacrifice. There was once a famous Austrian pianist who used to say, if I miss practice for a day, I notice the difference myself. If I miss for two days, my close friends begin to notice the difference. If I miss for three days, the public can tell that I have not been practicing. You know, I think that as Christians, we should be able to say that about our Bible reading. I I know I can say that about myself. If I haven't read my Bible for one day, I know it. I feel it in myself. If I miss for two days, and my family knows it, my wife and my kids, they know it. If I miss for three days, you all are going to find out, you know. I mean, it's going to come out, you know. My flesh nature is strong within me. But the reading of the Bible helps to change my life and transform, renew my mind. Number five, was it received? Was it received? Meaning that, was this collected, read, and used by the people of God? Do you know that Paul's letters were read 
physically in the church and then they were passed on to other churches that, you know, Paul had never even been to Coloss. He wrote the book of Colossians, sent it to him, and they read that letter and then they shared that letter. Paul says that he encourages them to take that letter and to share it in the other churches. And so that's what they did. And, and you could tell when it was the Lord speaking through that word, was it received? The people of God knew. So this is... Uh, Something that would happen initially, it was received initially, but then it was also received continually. Okay, it was, everybody could tell, yeah, this is a divinely inspired book. It was our president, Woodrow Wilson, who said, when you have read the Bible, you will know it is the word of God because you will have found it the key to your own heart, your own happiness, and your own duty. That is so true. The word of God is a key to our own hearts. All right, G, the canon is closed. Canon is closed now. That means that there's no longer going to be any books that are added to the canon of Scripture. The rule of faith is set. The standard has been laid out. There's nothing that is going to be added to the Bible. Why do we know that to be true? Well, number one, Jesus has spoken for the last days. Hebrew one, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. So, when are the last days according to this verse? The days that Jesus came. When Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. That's the beginning of the last days. So who is the revelation here about then? Or who must the revelation be about? It has to be about Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of canon scripture. And so when Jesus is gone, there's no, there's no need for more. Everything is completed in Christ. Secondly, we have everything that we need for faith and practice. Second Peter verse, or chapter 1 verse 3 says that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So then, what else is needed? Nothing. It's all been given to us. Notice the past tense there, that word given. Jesus gave it to us. Everything, that word everything is all-inclusive. Everything that's needed for a life of godliness. For life and godliness has been given to us in Christ. Number three, it has been delivered. Jude 3 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So the faith was what? It was once and for all entrusted to the saints. He's talking about how in these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus He's in Christ is given everything that we need for faith, for practice, and it was given to us once and for all. So the question then remains, can God give us more revelation? Well, yes, he can. He speaks to me. He speaks to you. He leads us in a daily way. But but notice this. It's never going to be anything new or contradictory. Okay, a little ditty there is if it's new, it's not true. That's a good test to apply to things that people are trying to teach in the church today. <clears throat> so when people come along and they say things like, 
well, you know, the Bible doesn't really mean what it says here because that only applies to the culture back in those days to when they had slaves and this and that and that sort of thing. Man, you should immediately start to have a little bit of a check in your heart and go, hold on a second. It sounds like you're saying something new. And if it's new, that means God's changed his character or he's changed his nature in some way. But the Bible is very clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God states that something was wrong in the Old Testament and then it's reaffirmed in the New Testament, he's not going to change his mind now. And, and, and say that something is now okay when it's been wrong for God all along. Um, and, and then, so what do we mean then? Well, then revelation, fresh revelation from the Lord, what do we mean by that? It's only going to restate or reaffirm what we have already been given. Okay, that's important. Yes, Bruce? What about just, I mean, thinking on the lines of more understanding. You mm-hmm. know, we don't quite understand, but sometimes... In our own lives, there's things that we've read, we've read many times. Yeah. And then God, by His Spirit, will reveal to us or apply at that yeah. point something that's more, uh, you know, applicable. Right. Right. Yeah. He gives us a deeper understanding, opens up the scriptures to us. That's true. Uh, but, but even in that, for example, He's not going to change something uh, that was, you know, that's a, a clear principle and command from Scripture. You know. Um, because the cults will say something along those lines. If you've uh, ever studied Mormonism, for example, there there was a time when if you were a black person, for example, you uh, were considered to be, uh, you know, not allowed to be a part of the church of, of the Mormons. The 70s, right? Was that Martin well, Cain or something? Yes, yeah, they, they had a name for it and everything, but then suddenly they had this new revelation, you know, and that new revelation suddenly changed the way and opened the door. And it's just kind of, that's, that's fishy. That's deceitful. That's not, uh, it, you know, that's why the scriptures, we, we know God is not a respecter of persons, the Bible tells us. He shows partiality to no man. And it's not about color. It's about the heart with the Lord. And that's, and that's always been true all the way through. And it's never going to change. And so that's, that's something that's important to, to understand about revelation. All right, coming there to the end of your handouts, we're going to spend a little bit of time just going over the different things there that uh, we want to review, things that you must know uh, for the quiz that will be coming up in a few weeks. Nothing major, but uh, just some good stuff. So let's, let's talk about that for a little bit here.